got a very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is real, real simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important things, but the most important of all those things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. God's Word is the primary tool that He uses to get you there. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, well, we can send you home with a paperback Bible today and fix all that. If you start reading it, I'll call it... A win. All right, so uh, The Princess Bride, man. I don't know if anybody really hates that movie. Like, like, you either love that movie or you're indifferent about that movie, but no one hates that movie. Like, we had a movie night, well, honestly, Friday night. Uh, we had a bunch of people show up. Uh, we decided, you know what, we've been talking about this all summer long. Let's watch The Princess Bride. And it was just good, clean fun, man, except for one major part that I forgot about where... Yeah, there was... Yeah, those things. All right, so... It's not the perfect church movie night movie, but it's close, all right? So, no, The Princess Bride is just good, clean fun for the most part. And uh, there's, there's all these memorable characters with these super memorable lines, uh, but there's this one line that for me just rises to the top of the pile just so fast. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish swordsman, trying to avenge his father. He teams up with Vicini and Fezzik, and they're trying to escape the, the man in black who's climbing up the cliff. And uh, Vicini, the, the short, bald guy, goes, inconceivable. And he uses it incorrectly. And he's used it incorrectly multiple times throughout the course of this movie already. And Inigo, he's just ready to call it out, man. He's like, you keep using that word, but I don't think that means what you think that means. Now, you can have whatever favorite line of the movie that you want. For some of you, um, it's Vicini threatening Fezzik. Do you want me to send you back to where you came from? Unemployed? In Greenland? For others, you think the best line is another thing that Vizzini says when he's in the battle of wits against the man in black. You remember that one? It says, you fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia but only slightly less well-known as this. Never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. And he laughs and laughs and laughs until he falls over dead. The Princess Bride, man, is just really good, clean, fun, full, it's memorable stuff. It's hard not to like. And obviously, it's a free country. You're allowed to like whatever line out of the movie that you like. But, man, I picked my favorite line for a very, very specific reason. It's because I find myself thinking that same thing all the time. Honestly, more than I would really like to fess up to. Sometimes my mouth moves faster than my brain and it comes out. Usually it's an internal dialogue, but I find myself thinking this out loud sometimes. Um, I, I don't think that means what you think that means. And you've probably been in situations like this, right? There's this thing, and for whatever reason, it keeps getting misused and misapplied, misquoted, misrepresented by people who end up twisting that thing into something that it was never actually meant to be. And so chaos happens, things get just really messed up, and there are all kinds of things that we do this to in our world, right? Misconceptions are all over the place. And so for the last several weeks, I have uh, just had a little fun uh, going through uh, online on the internet through Google and finding common misconceptions in the world, and I pulled some more funny ones out for you this morning. So you ready for number one? 
misconceptions in the world, despite the fact that it's the epitome of thrill-seekers and prove-I-can-do-it enthusiasts, Mount Everest is not actually the tallest mountain in the world. Well, it is sometimes. But then also sometimes it's not. See, it really depends on how you measure. It's a, it's a system of measurement issue. If you measure by mere altitude, then yes, Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, and always yes. Everest stands at over 29,000 feet above sea level, its peak. That's really, really, really tall. You don't get to hang out up there for very long. You have oxygen bottles. You can't hang out at 29,000 feet. There's nobody that just lives there. They probably would if they could. It's just, it's really, really tall. However, if we were to measure from the base of the mountain, to the very top of the peak, then Hawaii's Mauna Kea is actually taller than Mount Everest. It only stands 13,779 feet above sea level, so it's quite tropical and lovely and kind of nice. It's only half that of Everest altitude-wise, but you have to remember, Mauna Kea is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There's a lot under the water that you got to measure, right? And so by the time you add the under the water part, well, it stands at over 33,000 feet tall. That's 4,000 feet taller than Mount Everest, almost a mile. It's like my daughter standing at the top of the stairs going, Daddy, I'm taller than you while I'm down at the bottom. Okay, yes, but there's also facts, right? But, but there's actually a third way to measure mountains. You can also measure a mountain by how far its peak is from the center of the earth. That seems like a fair way to do things, right? You take the center of the earth or the estimated center of the earth and you measure to its peak. But it also just so happens that the earth is not a perfect sphere. It bulges at the equator, which means the equator is further away from the center of the earth than the rest of the part of the globe. And so that means that Mount Chimborazo, I'm sure I butchered that, Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador is taller than both of them. It's a pretty big mountain on its own at 20,000 feet above sea level, but when you measure from the Earth's core and account for the Earth's bulge, it's more than a mile taller than Everest. So pick your mountain and just call it the tallest, right? So I've got an idea. How about we all get on an airplane and we go to Hawaii and we just hang out there for a while. We call that base camp, all right? And then every once in a while, we take a nice little hike up to the top of Mauna Kea and we say that we summited the tallest mountain in the world. Sound fun? Everybody on board? That's where we're going next week, right? All right, misconception number two. Even though we think the odds are astronomical, lightning strikes the same place all the stinking time. Like, all the time. That's the myth, though, right? Lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. That's the thing we say. But lightning is an electrical current. Its desire is to get to ground as fast as possible, which means if there's something that will help it get to ground faster, it's going to choose that route. That's what it does. That's why we have things that we call lightning rods, right? We want the lightning to hit here rather than there. And so we create a pathway for the lightning. Major skyscrapers like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, they report getting struck by lightning hundreds of times a year. If a thunderstorm blows through New York City, it's pretty much guaranteed that both of those buildings are going to get struck multiple times, dozens of times even through the middle of that storm. And so if you want to experience this for yourself, you can pretend to be King Kong, and you can climb up to the top of the Empire State Building, swat a couple planes while you're at it, and just hang out there for a while, wait for a thunderstorm to come through, and you'll get to experience multiple lightning strikes. Sound fun? Maybe not? Okay, chicken. Number three. This one gets me a little worked up sometimes. Christianity is not a relationship. 
It's a religion. <laughs> we say that all the time, though, right? It's not a re- religion. It's a relationship. This, this one is a misconception more inside the church than outside the church. Um, it's this thing that gets thrown around all the time in Christian circles. And it sounds kind of cool. Like, like yeah, that's kind of comforting, right? I can, I can get behind that. It's a relationship, not a religion. And Christianity is definitely unique amongst the world religions. It's, it's a, we ascribe to a system of grace rather than a system of appeasement. And, and most religions in the world require certain actions from their people to make peace with their deity. Where, whereas Jesus calls us to actually walk in lordship relationship with him and trust his work on our, on, on our behalf. So Christianity is definitely distinct from the world religions in that way, but it's well, it's also intellectually dishonest to say it's not a religion. We gather regularly to worship a God that's revealed through a divinely inspired and sacred text. That's a very religious thing to do, right? Jesus gave us structure and a clear description of leadership. He commanded us to practice certain rites like baptism and the Lord's Supper. In other words, Jesus started a religion. That's, that's how it works. Now, now, we believe it's the only one true religion. We also believe that it centers around a relationship with God himself. But make no mistake, it's, it's a religion. Now, it, you may think it's a little nitpicky to bring it up, but here's the deal. The world outside these walls is not confused about this reality. We may try to market it that way, but the world outside of here isn't buying it. And so it may actually help our witness to them to simply just be more honest with our terms here, right? Crazy idea, but it, you know, it just might work. Just, just might work. But I got a fourth misconception for you, something that's common amongst our, the people of our world, even though we frequently accuse them of weak-mindedness. Goldfish actually have pretty good memories. What's the myth? That they only have a memory of what? Three seconds, right? That's what commonly gets thrown around, that goldfish only have a memory of three seconds. But actually, scientists have been able to train them to react to visual cues like color and other things like that. And so you can actually have a trained pet goldfish, which means in the culture that we live in, it won't be long before someone creates a little goldfish daycare boot camp for them. It's a growing market, so you investor types better get in on the ground floor, right? It's good money in that. So listen, there are all kinds of misconceptions out in our world, but the reality is that there are a lot of misconceptions inside of here too. A lot of misconceptions. Uh, The reality is that there's some significant, at times, misconceptions in the church. Uh, there are things, a lot of things, that people attribute to the Bible that either aren't in here at all or, or, or maybe are here but are misquoted and misapplied and misrepresented as something that we would call a proof text. A proof text we've been learning throughout the course of the series is when you take something out of its original context so that you can reframe it as something that it's not. When you pull it out of its immediate surroundings and you repackage it and rearticulate it as something that it was never intended to be. Now sometimes, well sometimes this is done on purpose by people who just want to be mean and want to cause damage to the church and to God's word and all these kinds of things. But a lot of times, honestly, it's just done out of sheer laziness. We don't know our Bibles well. and Well, something gets quoted that isn't exactly right, and somebody who also doesn't know their Bible well goes, hey, that sounds nice, and they repeat it, and then it gets repeated again, and it begins to take on a life of its own, and, and nobody ever steps in and says, well, let's look at it, what it actually says here. Figure this out for ourselves. But whether a proof text is done on purpose or not, well, the end result is always the same, right? Misinformation. God's word is twisted and 
maligned. And when you worship a God who claims to be the truth, that sounds like a problem, doesn't it? So what we want to do throughout the course of this series, what we've been doing and got a few more weeks left to do, is we want to just poke a little fun at ourselves and the Christian subculture that we've created and just gently and lovingly, but also in a funny way, just say, you keep using that verse, but I don't think that means what you think that means. Sound fun? So who's our offender today? 1 Corinthians 10.13, God will never give me more than I can handle from the MMQT that stands for the modern misquoted translation say (laughs) we'll get to why I say that in a second but for now say hello to the trying my best to encourage you verse right that's what this is if you're having a terrible day or, or even better if your friend has their life falling down around them it's just an utter shambles right now and you want to be like an active Christian presence in their life a Christ-like little encouraging force to kind of help them put the pieces back together and not get too overwhelmed then first Corinthians 10 it's got a verse for you it's a verse that you can quote to help yourself or other people feel better about their circumstances why Well, because it tells us that no matter what is going on, God's measuring out our life events and life circumstances by His divine understanding of our capacity. And who's smarter than God, right? God understands what's going on. God understands our 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 threshold. God understands the way we we're wired and the way we tick, and He understands uh, just how capable we are. So, who better to trust in those circumstances than God to be the one that's metering this stuff out, right? It's good news that God's in charge. And because the assumption here, the assumption here in this little verse, non-verse is, well, that He loves us, right? He knows what's our, what our breaking point is, and He's going to guard against us crossing that line. And until then, it's only stretching, right? Like, like we can be pushed, we can be pulled, but and, until then, it's only growing us. God will never let us redline on that. Never let us break. He's too good for that. Does anybody want to plant their flag and argue that, that God is capricious and isn't concerned with those things? He's just kind of making it up as he goes? Anybody want to suggest that, that the God who loves you and delights in his children somehow doesn't understand your frame and just sometimes accidentally gives you too much to handle? Here you go, Billy. Oh, sorry, I guess he wasn't ready for that. Does God work that way? No, God shows His his goodness and His faithfulness in knowing you inside and out. He knows exactly how you're wired. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly where you need to grow. But there is a question. It's It's a weird question, I get it, but it's a question. Like, Do you ever think that maybe, just maybe, He ever wants to grow us in our understanding of our dependence on Him? Is that something He does? Is He allowed to do that? Now, probably not, right? right? He, like, see, He loves me, and He's up there in heaven rooting me on. That, that's His main goal. His main goal is to cheer for me from the sidelines. He wants me to get it figured out. He wants me to experience that moment of victory. That's His actual aim. And I've got a verse that tells me so. And so in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, 
Well, Paul's words here, they, they give us a deep comfort, right? That, that no matter what's going on in our life, that, that God has a high view of me and thinks I can dig deep and pull it off. But you don't just have to take my word for it. I spent a little time on, on the Google machine this week and I came up with some real world examples. Here's some of what I found. First up are the posters because every good proof text needs a decorative poster. Like that's the way the system works. And, and for good reason, right? You can, you can go with lots of different styles. You can pick your, uh, your background. You can pick your font. There are even some companies that let you design one for yourself all right, and then get it shipped to you. That's kind of fancy, right? Posters are a good way to go. And, and that, that's a great route for living life because like, this is the kind of verse that you need to be able to look up at from time to time. Maybe it's in your office at work or maybe in the, the kids' room at home. Like, this is the verse that you need to look up every, at, every once in a while and remind yourself when everything's falling down around you, when everything seems like it's too much to bear, this is the verse you can go, Mm-mm, God's got my back on this. I haven't crossed that line yet. There's still hope because God thinks I can do this. And you can just go about your day like nothing changed because you got it. But listen, maybe you've got more of an eye towards something you know, decorative. You, you're more stylistic. You, you don't like paper posters on the wall. So what you can do is you can buy a replica drawing of Mother Teresa. Looks it's quite lovely, actually. It's got a little humorous quote from her down at the bottom. It says, I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. And we can have a conversation at another time about Mother Teresa's faith and what she did and did not believe. There's, there's actually some significant issues with her theological system. But what we can absolutely nail down this morning is that she never said this. It's been widely debunked. All over the place. Like, there, we have no doubt that she never said these words. However, it is all over the internet. The internet's never guilty of ascribing quotes to people that didn't actually say that thing, right? You never run across this on the internet? It's never, ever done that. This is the first time, obviously, in the history of the internet that somebody has been quoted with something they didn't actually say. Right? That's how the system works. Or am I naive? Okay, maybe not. But even if she never actually said these words, the quote, man, that's still awfully inspiring, right? Like, maybe she didn't say it, but man, it makes me feel nice. So here's what I can do. I can celebrate just the goodness and the truth that is the quote that doesn't belong to her by purchasing this lovely pendant. It's got the quote on there. And that's a good deal, right? It's $1.98. It's quite subtle. It's it's very modest and reasonably priced. Some of y'all... Some of y'all are starting to think through your Christmas shopping. You buy one for $1.98 each, but if you buy three, you get them for $1.86 each. Huh? Smart shoppers now. Just give them to people who don't talk to each other. That's how you do that. Who cares if she never said it, right? As far as jewelry concerned, that's quite cute. But listen, in this day and age, nothing And absolutely nothing is ever really going on unless it's shared on social media. And so what you need to do is make your devotional life Facebook official by posting a meme or two. And if you're just getting started, well, everybody's first meme needs to have a cat in it. Lord, I know you said you'd never 
give me more than I can handle, but sometimes I, did, I wish you didn't have so much confidence in me. Hey, it's the Mother Teresa quote. Look at there. Cats and internet, man, they go together like PB&J. It's just good stuff. But listen, you can't leave it there. You got to mature in your internet meme taste, all right? You got to raise the level of your game a little bit. And so after cats, it moves to, I think, what is a genuine attempt to, to try to be encouraging to people, right? Like one of them says, the blue one says, keep your head up. God gives his hardest battles to his strongest soldiers. Man, that makes me feel good about me. And then the one on the right, God only puts us through as much as we can handle. So the people who struggle the most have been chosen by God to be the strongest ones. Say something nice about those who are going through troubles. Man, that's a good thing to do. We we could quibble about the theology here, but like, is it the right time to do that? Like they're hurting, they're struggling. Should we really quibble about theology here? But quibble or not, the logic does get picked up and carried a little bit further. It eventually turns into sarcasm. They say God won't give you more than you can handle. Obviously, he has way too much confidence in me. The tone here is just really good. Like, I'm trying to be funny. The logic, though, takes another step, and, and then it asks for an amen like a good church kid. God will never give you more than you can handle. He just sometimes has more faith in us than we do in ourselves. Type amen if you believe, and you better believe Jesus is type, counting those amens, right? Like, that's how you get the blessing. Notice, though, who the hero of this phrase is. Something has shifted. It's a subtle shift, but it has shifted. Who's the hero now? It's you. We're not celebrating God's greatness, God's goodness in this reality anymore. We're celebrating something else. But the logic always takes another step. I believe I'm not the only one who believes that you can cope. God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. Semicolon, God believes in you so much. Be sure to believe in yourself too. This one pushes God completely to the sidelines in your life story. According to this logic, he's now just acting as the cheerleader rooting you on. Hoping you'll realize your potential. He really wants to see you do it and he's just hanging around to make sure you can. Give you a little help along the way. But then finally, the logic and theology take their last step. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Well, actually, some people do get a lot more than any one person should ever have to handle and it doesn't come from God. You pay attention to the world long enough and you begin to realize that this world is really, really broken, right? really, really broken. And so you're left with this mental conflict, right? You can, can God really be the author of this mess? Like, I'm looking at the circumstances around me, and if God's responsible for that, I don't want that God. In fact, I don't think he can be responsible for this mess. That's what's going on here. And so many people completely reject the suggestion that God would ever be sovereign and in in charge of the circumstances of their life. Because, I mean, they're looking around, they're going, he better not be. Others, though, others, though, take a darker route. Because if God's not to blame for their overwhelming circumstances, well, then that means that they are. It's hard to read. It says, they say God will never give you more than you can handle. And then underneath a picture of a guy who's obviously heartbroken. 
Some days I wonder if they're right. This, whoever wrote this is in a place where they're wondering if God can be in control because they're looking around them and they're, they're losing hope. Hey guys, bad theology hurts people. No, really. Bad theology actually hurts people. This one, I know it's hard to read. I just don't want to try anymore. This is superimposed over a picture of a cross. I just don't want to try anymore. I give up on life. I keep thinking God will never give me more than I can handle. But I'm, not, I'm sure I'm there now. Please, God, just take me now. I found this in a Google image search looking for Bible verses. I didn't go searching for this kind of stuff. This popped up with me spending 15 minutes in a Google image search looking for some funny stuff to share with you today. Somebody really thinks this. Theology is not simply an ivory tower discipline. What you believe about God has a direct effect on how you live and how you see the world. And false views of God and how he works can actually really hurt people. This last week for me has been one of the most chaotic and stressful I've had in a really, really long time. Um, I'll just save you all the, the fun details, but since last Sunday, literally the last time we were all together in this room, I've had my car die on me. And I don't mean just wouldn't start. I mean, it's dead. All right? the, the mechanic wanted several thousand dollars more than what it's actually worth in order to be able to drive it off the lot again. I was forced to cut my losses and walk away. We bought a cheap little daily driver for the meantime, which, which means I'm relearning how to drive a stick shift right now. I bring that up because I've stalled it three times this week. Once in my, we've got a big hill going up into our, our, our condominium complex, and it's got these big speed bumps in it, and, well, issues. <laughs> One time, though, was in a very busy intersection down by the mall in South Nashua. Very big, busy intersection. Uh, now, why was I down there? I don't normally go to the mall. I usually try to avoid the mall. But Friday morning, I had to go to the mall because Friday morning, I got up early before a ministry event. We had a kid's play day out at the park. And I thought, you know what? I'll go into the office early. I'll get some stuff done. I'll get some sermon prep done. I'll get on my computer and start typing away. And in the middle of that process, I knock a full cup of coffee across my MacBook. The reason why I stalled out at an intersection down at the mall is because I was in a very big hurry to get to the Apple store to try to get it fixed. They weren't able to fix it. I've had a fun week this week. That's on top of a long list of other smaller things that happened. Like I was 45 minutes for a meeting, 45 minutes late for a meeting Wednesday night because I got lost in Rhode Island. Does anybody ever want to spend too much time in Rhode Island? Sorry, Margie. Long story short, I, I had a really rough week. And there, just to be honest, there, there were times that there were times that I, I felt overwhelmed. And all the while, I'm supposed to be preparing to preach 1 Corinthians 10:13 this week. The way this verse commonly gets thrown around in our camp is not 
a comfort to me in those moments. Not even a little bit. I, I don't want to be applauded for being the one for being one of God's strongest soldiers. I don't think I am. I don't want that. I, I don't want to pretend that I'm bigger and stronger than my circumstances on that really, really hard day, really tough week. I want a God who is. And there's some of you who could realistically look at my week as stressful as it was for me and laugh a little bit because you think that's an easy one. You're daily walking through chronic pain and chronic heartache that makes my bad week look like a fun time. I'm just going to guess. I don't, I don't think you want to pretend either. So we've been saying all throughout this series that there's no distinction between what's out there and what's in here when it comes to our, our capability to have blind spots and to proof texts. Short of the grace of God, I, I, we're just as fallen and just as capable of those blind spots. And so, so if that's true, is it possible that there's a blind spot in the way we look at 1 Corinthians 10.13? Probably so. So let's look at how the Bible actually frames it for us, for us this morning. Start with me in verse 1. 1 Corinthians is the first of several letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Greece. Um, he, uh, we have two that are still around, 1 and 2 Corinthians, but we believe there were at least two more that have been lost. All right? uh, they were written to a church that Paul helped to begin. Uh, the church vocabulary for that, you'll hear in here from time to time, is that he planted this church. Uh, he served as their pastor during the infancy of this church. Um, and So he knows this church pretty well. He knows the people pretty well. Paul moved on by this time to plant a lot of other churches in a lot of other places, but he knows the way they think. He knows the way they view the world. He understands the specific culture and values of their city. And so Paul writes this letter back to them years and years later um, to address some sin issues that have crept in. Right? Uh, two issues specifically. He addresses some sexual issues early on in the, the letter. And then he's going to speak then next to what we call Christian liberty. The idea that we have the freedom to participate in things that aren't expressly forbidden in the Bible. Right? And so that category covers all kinds of things. But Paul's got his sights on one specific thing. Uh, meat. Right? He's, he's, he wants to talk about meat. All right? The example that, that Paul's going to talk about is whether or not Christians are allowed to eat meat that had been previously sacrificed to false gods. That seems like a weird thing to have to talk about in a letter. We don't typically deal with that in our culture. But we talked about this in the past. The God of their neighbors, uh, the, the, their idols, their statues, they needed to be fed, they needed to be bathed, they needed to be taken care of. And so they would butcher the cow or they would butcher the lamb and they would lay this meat on the altar for the God to eat. But it was just a statue. So like that meat didn't go anywhere. Like nothing ate it up. So eventually you got to do something with the meat or you're left with a pretty smelly problem, right? And so the uh, one they we used to do, well, really two things. One of two things would usually happen. The most, common, the most common thing that would happen was that the meat would be given away or sold for cheap in the marketplace. Like a lot of people had this fear, this superstition about eating something that used to be a sacrificial offering. So, well, you needed to, to get it off your hands pretty easily. And so give it away or sell it for cheap. And, and so the Christians are over here in the corner going, that's some good-looking meat you got there. That doesn't seem so bad. You're saying it's on sale? Okay. 
Okay, listen, I don't think their God's going to do anything about it. He's not real. He's a statue. How about we have some steak tonight, boys? <laughs> so a big argument arose in the church as to whether or not Christians ought to eat this stuff. And, and earlier in this letter, in chapter 8, Paul answers the question on a theological level. He says that it's free game. It's just meat. Their God is not real. There's nothing he's going to do. It's just a statue that they laid a hunk of meat on. You can eat the meat. That's okay. However, there are some of you who have recently come out of worshiping those false idols, and you're going to have a problem separating those, those ideas out. And so if you're around somebody who is struggling with that issue out of love for them, you should joyfully lay down your freedoms for their good. That's his argument in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, Paul spells out that others focus reality just a little bit more. Uh, because, because we belong to Jesus, uh, we have all the rights in the world. But because we belong to Jesus, we freely and joyfully lay down any right that stands in the way of people coming to know him. That's Paul's argument in chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians. And then in chapter 10, Paul continues that logic. And we read this in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul opens up the history book here. He, he brings in the story of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings of their people. And he says, listen, our fathers were all under the cloud, meaning the pillar of cloud that followed them, that led them in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? All right? He says, they all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. They, they all ate the manna, the spiritual food. Paul says that their fathers were baptized into Moses. And that's really religious speak. But what he's saying is that, uh, that their identities were tied to being a people of the covenant and a people of the law. That's who they were. And then in verse 4, Paul says something that, well, it needs a little bit of explanation. He says, they all drank the same spiritual drink. If you know your Bible well, then you know that there are a couple of stories in Exodus and in Numbers that both tell us about God's people in the desert needing some water. And what does God do? He provides water for them through a, a rock, right? Through a rock. In the first one, in Exodus, Moses is told to strike the rock with his staff. And so he does so, and water comes flowing out, and it's sweet instead of bitter. And it's all this incredibly lovely stuff. Yay, God provided. And then later, 37 years later, the story happens again in Numbers. Moses is told to speak to the rock this time. And what does Moses do? He strikes the rock. It's a disobedient moment for Moses. He gets in a lot of trouble, has a little time out. He doesn't get to go in the promised land. That's how it works. Water still comes out, though. God provides for his people through the rock, but Moses gets in a lot of trouble. The first instance happened toward the beginning of their time in the wilderness, and the second instance happened toward the end of their time. you got these bookend stories in their wilderness wanderings about water being provided in the desert through a rock. Right? So why does that matter? Well, during the first century, 
It had become common for Jewish scholars and, and commentators on the Torah to point to those two stories at the beginning and at the end of the wilderness wandering and argue that the physical rock traveled with God's people the entire time. Somehow the rock was always there. That's what Jewish scholars in that time and period were saying about these stories. But Paul, Paul uh, makes reference to that idea here. He says they drank from the spiritual rock that what? Followed them. That's what he, he brings that up. But Paul here takes, takes it to a much higher conclusion than his Jewish contemporaries. Because with what he says next, he says, And the rock was who? Christ. Rather than a physical rock that followed God's people around, God, Paul argues that the presence of God's Son dwelt with them, providing for their needs. That's Paul's argument here. The pre-incarnate Christ was in the midst of them. You think, well, you think that that would be a recipe for a lot of good things, right? I mean, think about it. God has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he's uh, providing for them. He's given them food that falls out of the sky every day, and water's coming rushing from rocks, and he's protecting them like the Egyptians all drowned in the Red Sea. Like, all of these good things are happening. He's sheltering them. He's in the midst of them. But here in verse 5, well, we see a darker reality. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. See, despite all of the things to, that were going on to their advantage, they still walked in disobedience before him, and God was not happy with his people. And so in verse 6, Paul says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul says that one of the reasons why the wilderness wanderings, the stories of what happened there, were passed on down to us is so that we, they could serve as examples for us. That's one of the reasons that we're told the story, that we can see their example, their preventative stories told and retold and retold again in order to warn us away from following the path that they followed. That we might not desire evil as they did, he says. What kind of evil are we talking about? Well, Paul begins to unfold that for us in verse 7. He says this, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, so I told you a little while ago that um, there were two main ways that people used to, to get rid of the meat that had previously been sacrificed to animals, uh, sacrificed to the false gods in the temples, right? The first was that it was given away or sold for cheap to people who would often take advantage of that deal. Paul has already argued, already argued that the meat itself is just simply meat. That we shouldn't attach spiritual value to it. And so lay down your rights if necessary for the good of your brothers, but otherwise enjoy the steak. Go have a pot roast after church. All right? That's his argument. But there's a second way that the meat used to be used. And from an ethic standpoint, it's slightly more complicated. Some of the meat was prepared as a big feast in the pagan temples to honor the God it was previously sacrificed to. And it was an open meal that anybody could come to including the Christians of the city. And so they did. They'd go to the pagan feasts that were honoring the God of the sacrifice and have a big meal with everybody who was participating in their worship. And in verse 7, Paul's logic is now turning to that focus. Guess what? He's not a fan. 
In fact, later in verse 21, he calls it the table of demons. That's a fun title for a dinner party. Paul says it's inconsistent for somebody to participate in the Lord's table and then go on to sit at the demon's table. Meat is just meat. It's all it is. It's all it'll ever be. But the Corinthian church took the next step and actually participated in the acts of worship that it was involved in. Paul goes, hey, I've heard how this story ends. There's a story in the Old Testament that you probably know and ought to know. And guess what? It doesn't end well. God was displeased with his people when they walked down that road in the past. How do you think it's going to end up now? They sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play, assuming that nothing's wrong. It's just a dinner party. But they were actively participating in idolatry. But he keeps going. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. All right, so Paul has already addressed the sexual sin in the camp, right? He, he spoke to that earlier in the letter. And so he's got that in view here, but he hasn't changed the subject. He's still talking about idolatry. Right? He hasn't gone back to the sex thing. He's still talking in the, the context of idolatry. Uh, but here in verse 8, he's talking about the active practice of participating in, in the pagan temple worship practices. And so it would not be uncommon at all for there to be sexual acts included in the worship of these false gods. In fact, it was a pretty normal thing in this day and age. And I know that because of the 23,000 who fell in one day that he references here. That's a reference to Numbers 25. And in that story, we see exactly this happening. God's people had intertwined themselves with the neighboring pagan religions and started practicing these things in that way. They were participating in their worship acts. And so God sends a plague on his people and 23,000 folks die. That's what's going on in Numbers 25. The story also ends in one of the coolest ways in the Bible. Go read it for yourself. I'm not going to read it here because there's kids in the room. Anyone who's ever, though, argued that the Bible is boring has never read this story. Just saying. You should go read it for yourself. The church in Corinth had an arrogance about them. A very real arrogance about them that led them to flaunt what they understood to be Christian liberty, understood to be Christian freedom, understood to be Christian maturity. But at the end of the day, they were, they were simply repeating the sins of their fathers. So they put Christ to the test. And they grumbled. And they flaunted their sin. And, and Paul here goes, hey, hey, you know how those stories end, Right? You, you've read the Torah. You, you, know, you know how those stories end. It, it's a bad look. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let, any, uh, let, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we spent some time last week talking about the correct view of sin. Jesus in Matthew 18 says that sin is deadly serious and ought to be seen as such. That's what we talked about last week, right? And here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, hey, don't act like you didn't know. 
We've seen this play out before. This isn't new information. We've been told and retold and retold again this story. It always ends this way. Don't act like you didn't know. Take heed lest you fall, he says. Anybody that's there standing tall, anybody that wants to puff up their chest and act like they got it figured out, they best leave that arrogance at the door because it's going to go bad. This is bigger than you. And it's here that we get to look at our theme verse for the morning. Verse 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you know how I said earlier that our quote for the day was from the modern misquoted translation? It's because it doesn't actually exist. At least not in the form that those who don't read their Bibles think it does. There's not one single reputable translation where I can find that says, God never gives me more than I can handle. And I've got a few higher level tools than most people. Finding is not the issue. It's not there. There is one thing, though, that calls itself a translation, but should not, that does have it. It's called the Passion Translation. Translation is not a fair title, though. Translations are put together by teams of scholars across multiple disciplines, across multiple denominations, and they, they do that to protect from, from theological and philosophical bent. All right? you, can't, you can't lean and steer the ship in the wrong direction if everybody's from different sides pulling on it, right? And so, and when Bible translation is done, you put teams of people in the room. People who know the discipline and understand the discipline and have expertise in the discipline. And so that's the way we protect ourselves from things going terribly, terribly wrong. It, it prevents one person with a theological bent from steering those sh that ship into the rocks, right? The Passion Translation is not a translation. In fact, it would be unfair to call it a paraphrase. It's a rewriting of the Bible by a single person with a very, very clear theological bent. It has become the first choice of those in the prosperity gospel movement for a very clear reason. It's because he wrote it to be that way. There are things that are taken out. There are things that are added in. There are things that are completely reworded because it fits the narrative of the prosperity gospel. And so this is how the TPT phrases verse 13. Now, we all experience times of testing, which is normal for every human being, but God will be faithful to you. He will screen and filter the severity, nature, and timing of every test or trial you face so that you can bear it. And each test is an opportunity to trust Him more, for along with every trial, God has provided for you a way of escape that will bring you out of it victoriously. I know that there are some similarities in there, but those paragraphs are not actually saying the same thing. They're not. As Paul is arguing that sin is serious and that examples of that seriousness have been given to us over and over and over again. We've been given these examples to warn us and guard us against those things as he argues that temptation to sin is a normal part of the fallen world that we live in, all right? And that, but that through God's strength that we have the ability to escape that temptation. As he tells us to, that we are never forced into sin, but that there's always a righteous pathway out of it. As Paul is arguing for those things, the Christian subculture that we created of ourselves comes in and looks for a way to celebrate us as it always does. 
It's what we're best at. God's watching out for me. Ra ra sis boom ba. He's cheering me on from the sidelines, and he'll never give me more than I can handle because his desire is for me to live victoriously. Instead of it being a clear warning to avoid sin, we twist it, we manipulate it into being something that we can use to exalt ourselves again. And the irony here is insane. In a text that is devoted to warning us against idolatry, we spin it around and use it to make an idol out of ourselves. It is a textbook definition of hubris. I told you in the very first week of this series that proof text always, always makes things worse. Always. Never better. So, how is the original better? Well, look at the actual text again. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In a world that is fully broken with sin, you know, in a world where we all deal with bad days and bad weeks and bad years and yeah, sadly, even bad lifetimes because of the fall. God is faithful and He cannot be unfaithful. It is outside of his character. He is faithful. Even though we all long for the day when sin and death will be forever done away, put away with, shelled forever and forgotten. Even though we all long for that day and we desperately wait for the effects of sin to be forever healed, hear me, church family, we are not left merely to wait for that day. We long for that day to come quickly, but we don't simply wait for that day. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are no longer enslaved to our sin. There is a righteous pathway out because God is faithful. Do we fail to choose that righteous way sometimes? Absolutely yes. And sometimes the crash is fiery. But that's what the cross was for. If we could pull this off ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus to come. That's what the cross was for. And Sanctification, man, it's a messy business. It always will be. But God is faithful. Always and ever faithful. And so as He continues to shape us into being more and more like Himself, that decision to avoid sin, well, it it becomes easier and more obvious as we go on, doesn't it? Are there still bad days? Yeah, but... Listen, we have the very, very real hope that our hearts today can be just a little less stained by sin than they were yesterday. And that's good news, right? Not because you're God's strongest soldier. Neither am I. But because He's faithful. Guys, I don't think 1 Corinthians 10.13 means what people who put it on cat memes on the internet think it means. Follower of Jesus, God loves you and he wants the greatest of all goods for you. He flexes his sovereign reign over the cosmos to accomplish that good. Nothing can stand in his way. 
Nothing. But the greatest good in your life is not a life that leads you right up to the, le- the red line of what you can handle, your capacity, and no further. Your greatest good is your personal holiness. And God wants that for you desperately. And He is joyfully capable to provide the pathway for you to walk in it. The more you look like Him, the more you're walking in step with who He's actually created you to be. He is capable and good. And the very next words out of Paul's mouth in verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Count sin as deadly serious. Treat it as such. Turn away from your natural bent to exalt yourself and celebrate yourself. Turn away from your natural bent to serve yourself and satiate yourself and instead run far, far in the other direction. That's what he's saying. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.13 is all about. God will help you get there. You're not, you're not overwhelmed here. He'll help you get there. He's provided the pathway. So the question that must be asked this morning is simple. How do you see your sin? Do you see it as your only option? Do you justify it, make excuses for it? Or maybe, listen, even reframe it and rearticulate it as something that's worthy to be celebrated? The Corinthian church did exactly that. There's nothing new under the sun. Despite warning after warning after warning, they... They use it as an opportunity to make much of themselves. So how do you see your sin this morning? Is it your only option or do you see the righteous pathway out? I didn't say easy pathway. That's usually the other option. I said the righteous pathway. I think that Jesus guy said something about that once. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, right? You do that by repenting of sin and leaning into His goodness. You do that by asking a very real question. Am I beginning to see the righteous pathway better? And if not, maybe there's something that needs to change. Maybe there's a turn that needs to happen. If you're here this morning you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we, we want to give you an opportunity to meet Him today. See, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are rightly separated from God. We always choose the path of sin because that's what's most pleasing and attractive to us. Always. It's, it's what our natural bent is. But the Bible also teaches that God is willing to bridge that gap and reconcile the separation that is between us. Jesus came. Jesus lived a sinless life before the Father, perfectly obedient to God and His commands. He died on the cross to, as a substitute to pay the debt that you and I owe for our sin. And He now calls you to repentance and to faith. The Bible teaches that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead will be saved. So we want to give you an opportunity to to do that. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be an opportunity for you to call on Him this morning. You don't need anybody else to make that decision, but listen, I'll be down front here if you want somebody to help you walk through it. There will be some leaders down front here for those who need to talk or pray or maybe help with some other decision they got going on, but let's, let's all respond to God's Word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the Scriptures. Thank you for 1 Corinthians. 
Thank you for the call to holiness. It's bigger than me and weightier than me, and I can't attain it without your grace and your work in my life, but that's exactly what you have promised. Trials will come, and it's a reality of the fall. But you have promised to be near. You haven't promised to make me strong. You've promised to let me find my rest in your strength. And when the trials come and the temptation follows with it because it's easier to run back to the familiar friend, you've promised to be there. You've promised to provide a righteous way forward. You've promised to carry me through to the end. So God, continue to change my heart. Continue to draw me near to Yourself and turn me into to someone who looks more and more and more like You every day. I am weak, but You are strong. I am feeble, but You are mighty. I am created and You are Creator. So show your bigness and your goodness today by calling us out of darkness and into light. Call us to repentance of these little things that we think are the best option. But really, you're just repeating the sins of our Father. God, would you save people today? Would those who don't know you yet meet you? Would you make yourself known? Help us respond well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.